Open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 47, please. Psalm 47. We find ourselves in an interlude this morning of sermons. Having finished our last series, and then before our fall sermon series on John starts here in a couple of weeks, I'll be taking a couple of weeks vacation, which I haven't done in a couple of years, so uh, we're looking forward to spending some time together uh, outside of Midland. We love it, but, you know, it's Midland and there are other places, so... Uh, I woke up this morning to saying, hey, listen, we're watching a tropical storm in the Gulf or a disturbance. And I'm thinking, oh, no. No, you don't. So pray that we, uh, we don't have any more tropical issues so that we can go and enjoy God's creation for a few days. So until then, we're in Psalm 47 this morning, and then we'll be jumping into John's gospel, Lord willing, here in a couple of Sundays which I am just excited about, uh, having worked on it again this week and starting to prepare ahead. Uh, I was ready to preach John today, but uh, I think it's best to wait until we can have more continuity. Let's look at Psalm 47. For the choir director, a psalm to the sons of Korah. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Father, please do what that last line says now and highly exalt yourself above every earthly thought that we've brought with us this morning. Still those. Remove us from the world and its concerns and cares now. And give us a glimpse into heaven. May we see you on your holy throne reigning and ruling. To our everlasting joy and benefit and to your everlasting glory. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, the Psalms really are the the richest collection of expressions of the full spectrum of the Christian life. If you need it, it's in the Psalms. If it's an emotion that you've experienced, it's in the Psalm. If it's a truth you need to know, it's in the Psalm. So much so that Martin Luther rightly called the Psalms his little Bible. If Luther could have been left, it's said with only one book, he wanted to be left with the Psalms. 
Because in it, he found the sum of Scripture compiled in, in compact form. And so it is true that wherever we find ourselves in life, at whatever station and with whatever concerns we are carrying, that the answer is found in the Psalms. And they speak. Not only do they speak, they speak powerfully to us. Maybe it's true that nowhere... Do the Psalms speak more relevantly and more clearly to every aspect of our lives than when they speak of the reign of our King and our God? You know, having spent much time several years ago in the Psalms of Lament, it's true that what brought David not out of the trial and not out of the hardship, but, but brought him to a place of worship, even in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances that life could throw your way, was this truth that God reigns. When your enemies pursue you, God reigns. When sin has devastated your life and the lives of those around you, God still reigns. When sickness encompasses our bodies and when it racks our bodies, it's okay. God still reigns. And because God reigns, there is hope. Because God reigns, there is ultimately victory. And when we speak of the reign of God, and specifically the reign of King Jesus this morning, what we need to remember, brothers and sisters, is that God reigns and our Christ reigns right now. Right now, Jesus is reigning. And and I'll just say this, that one of the glaring holes in contemporary American theology, I believe, that that has pervaded far too much of evangelicalism is an understanding of the kingdom of God. We're deficient there. I don't think we've thought through Scripture as completely as we should. We haven't dwelled on the great themes, the, the fact that God is reigning. We sang it this morning. This is my Father's world. He owns it. He possesses it. He rules it. Not not only in the future, and I think sometimes we in American Christianity tend to think of the kingship of God and the rule of God as something, oh, it's going to happen. He's going to come. He's going to reign. But brothers and sisters, He is reigning. We're not waiting for that to start. It is currently a reality for everyone. Christian or not, God reigns. God reigns. No, no, have we seen the fullness of that reign? Not yet, but we will. But it doesn't negate the fact that we have great encouragement and great hope in the reality that God reigns now. And God desires that we would crown him as a reigning king with our worship and with our, with our lives and our songs of praise, with our thinking, with our trust. As king, even as we await his full and complete reign. God is absolutely omnipotent this morning. If you have to remember anything when you leave, remember that God reigns. God reigns in omnipotence. God is not out of control. God has not been replaced. God has not been equaled. God still reigns. I will give you some context this morning for Psalm 47. It's known as an enthronement psalm. It is one of those special psalms that was set apart for the people of God to sing. Perhaps it was at a, at a corporate gathering of the nation of Israel that they would have sung this psalm. 
Perhaps it was just given to be used throughout daily life. But these enthronement psalms are given to magnify and exalt God as He has revealed Himself. And we know this, throughout Scripture, God has revealed Himself as a reigning King, one who sits upon His throne. Just do a little search of that phrase when you get home this afternoon. He sits upon His throne. It's all throughout Scripture. God is everywhere pictured as being on His throne, ruling and reigning. They remind us that that God is exalted in absolute power, absolute perfection and holiness. Why does God do that? Because He knows, and in His grace and His mercy, He knows we are so often surrounded by our enemies and His enemies that it's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to feel like life is out of control. It's easy to feel like life is being ruled by chance and chaos rather than a plan. And God reminds us in all of these passages throughout Scripture, hey, I reign. You know, the thought occurred to me yesterday that there are no unknown entities to God. Not one second, not one molecule, not one cell. As I was reflecting on the difficult week that some of us have had, some of you have had, you know, there wasn't a time when God was unaware of what was transpiring even in our bodies. God knew the first cancer cell that popped up, the very moment it popped up. He knows. Why? Because he's written the story from beginning to end. He knows what's in the book. He knows what page it's on, what line it's on, where in the, in the line that, the, that it falls. God has written everything and decreed it all. And he's over all and he reigns supreme. And, and you know, that's comforting. If life were just evolving and happening by chance and chaos, how discouraging that would be. But yet to know as the people of God that He does rule over all things. And He's not inept or without power. The Lord reigns. Psalm 96.10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. If there's ever a time to stand up and declare that message, isn't that today? Our world is so gripped by chaos, it's so gripped by fear. We we need the voice of the church to stand up and say, this one thing we know, our God reigns. Psalm 96, where did God want the children of Israel to proclaim that among the nations? In the world. They need to come to know this God because they will come to know this God. But it's better to know Him now and bow the knee now than later. So say to the nations, the Lord reigns. Submit yourself to Him. And so Psalm 47 sits after Psalm 96 and before, I'm sorry, before Psalm 48 and after Psalm 4. I sound like Joe Biden. That's pathetic. I can't put a sentence together all of a sudden. Psalm 47 sits after Psalm 46 and before Psalm 48. And it supports this great theme. And if you go back to Psalm 46 for just a moment, let your eyes just fall there. God is our refuge 
and strength, a very present help in trouble. What comfort is that, brothers and sisters? How how can that be? Because he reigns? Because of where he is? He is a refuge and a strength to us, a, a constant help in times of trouble. Therefore, we won't do what? We won't fear. No reason to fear. The Lord reigns. We go over to Psalm 48. We read this. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is what? A God who reigns. A God who sits on his throne. And here, sandwiched in the middle of this, is the instruction to God's people based on these Two realities, that God does reign and that it is a great rejoicing to us that he does. I want to point out something that I hope helps you understand this psalm. And as you read it, maybe it becomes a little more uh, useful and ready to be taken out and used in your own life. I want you to notice that in Psalm 47, there are two bookends that hold the psalm together. They are verse 2 and verse 9. And they're held together by this common thought that the Lord is most high. And it ends on that phrase, he is highly exalted. Those are the bookends that under the inspiration of God and using Hebrew poetry that hold this together. They're like clamps that are squeezing this together into one cohesive whole. God is highly exalted. Second, I want you to notice the heart of the psalm is found in verse 5. God has ascended with a shout. Everything leads up to that and everything leads down from that. That is the high point of the psalm. The presence of the Lord, he is in his holy place. And he has ascended there with a shout of victory. A shout of joy, a shout of truth. That stems from who he is. And with those two things in our mind, we can now begin to take this psalm as it flows and as it comes. And we find that we do that best by observing two commands about our obligations found in verse 1 and verse 6. There are two obligations of all the people of God. Look at those with me this morning. There's number one, the obligation of all the people. Look in verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. How are we to respond to a God who reigns? A God who has ascended to his throne. We are to clap our hands. All the peoples of the earth are to praise him. The fundamental problem in our world today is that we are not worshipers of God. So you might say the fundamental problem is sin. Well, that caused the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that God's creation and his creatures, or I shouldn't say creation because the rocks and hills will cry out, but his creatures, us, human beings, don't worship God naturally. And yet the command is the same because we are created by him. We are to praise him. All peoples are to praise him. They have an obligation. We have an obligation. The lost and the saved alike have an obligation to praise the Lord. We tend to think in compartmentalized ways that it's Christians who should worship the Lord. Everybody else has exercised their uh, democratic choice not to worship the Lord, and they're now free from that obligation. Not true. 
Clap your hands, all peoples, everyone, and worship the Lord. The reality is that all people on the earth are God's people created by him. And they are obligated to bring him worship. Their judgment is that they do not worship him. They don't. And therein lies the problem. That is why we must say to the nations in Psalm 96 verse 10, Worship the Lord. Give praise to his name. You are obligated to do so. Not just us, but you as well. And you are wrong because you are not doing that. You must worship the Lord. This is a non-negotiable. The psalm is built upon seven imperatives here in Psalm 47. To respond to God in worship because he does reign. David gives, or I'm sorry, the psalmist gives seven commands. Seven being the number of perfection, not lost on a Hebrew reader. No doubt we would read it and just totally miss it in our Western minds, but in their Eastern and Hebrew mind, they would have seen that and they would have seen, oh, there's seven imperatives here. There's seven commands that we are to worship the Lord. All the the earth is to worship the Lord because he he is exalted, because he has created us. And in verse 1 and again in verse 5, we're reminded of just the ecstasy of this celebration over who God is. Let me ask you a question. Do you know who God is? Oh, I know some facts about God. No, but do you know him? Well, you know, I, I know some book facts about him. No, but do you know him? Is it a joy for you to know him? Do, do you come away from your time with the Lord, from your time with, with this reigning God, as you would from someone who you've wanted your whole life to meet and spend time with and say, I know him. I can say I know him now. But to know the Lord is to worship the Lord. It is the foundation. And in verses 1 and 5, we see what happens when the people of God know him. When they are in his presence and they shout, they can't be contained. They've got to tell everyone. It's reminiscent of the scene in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15. David brings the ark to the temple. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. That's what we find here, isn't it? Verse 1, shout to God with a voice of joy. Verse 5, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. This is how David bringing the very presence of God to the temple of God. This is the response of the people. A shouting, a rejoicing, a, a joy that overflows in exuberant praise for who God is. This is the familiar response. It's not coaxed. It's not cooked up. This is the response of the people to be in the presence of God. Their God has come. Remember in the Old Testament system that God dwelled in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. That was God's throne room, if you will. That is where God lived and that is where the people collectively met with the Lord. 
through the high priest as he ushered their sacrifice in to the presence of God. And so they're thrilled and they're ecstatic that they get to see and behold the presence of God in their midst. He has ascended to his throne. Perhaps this is a psalm used of, of that time of David and ascending the steps, ascending up to Jerusalem. When as the ark passed through the nation and passed through the people, it rallied them in celebration. Why? They know who their God is. It's it's like Nehemiah, chapter 8. The people had been taken away into exile and they come back. And in Nehemiah, chapter 8, we find that Ezra, the priest, has recovered the word of God. The very presence of God with his people. God was going to speak to his people. And he takes out the scroll and they begin to read the scroll. And the people stand up. And they weep. Not in sorrow, but in joy. Because God had been recovered and found. And he was with his people. And his word was with his people. And they rejoiced in Israel. David says, you've got to. Find that here in Psalm 47. Your God reigns. He is with you. He is on his throne and yet with you. And in verse 2, David, or I'm sorry, the psalmist uses this name for God. He says he's the most high. He is El Elyon. El being a Canaanite reference to unknown deity. El was just kind of a, Catch-all God, if you will, in the Canaanite system. And it's as if the psalmist is saying, he is not just El, he is El Elyon. He is not a God, he is the God Most High. No one is there with him, and no one is over him. He is the Most High God. There are no other gods. There, the, the Hebrew could literally be construed to mean, there is nothing higher. Literally, whatever the gods of the people were, however high they were, our God is higher. And that's what David wants to know. So, brothers and sisters, when it feels like the world around you is pressing in, and it feels like the gods of this world are winning, know this, there is no God higher. Our God is on high. He is the most high. They are nothing beneath his feet. He rules and he reigns. When the world says to us that nothing is sovereign over us, you remind them El Elyon is. He is God most high. Or when men begin to fancy themselves as being God, maybe they don't say it in those words, you know, but they live like it. We need to remind them God most high is God. For people surrounded by their enemies, as Israel was, and as we are today, we need to be reminded of this truth. I know because I've talked to you, I spend time with you, I know some of you get discouraged, as I do, and you feel like, man, we we are living in a defeated world. It's depressing. No, it's not. Not when you remember this truth. Our God reigns because nothing is higher than our God. Perhaps drawing on the tradition in passages like we read earlier from 
2 Samuel chapter 6, or perhaps 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the kings of Israel, how much more should we be worshiping and celebratory awe of God? 2 Kings 11 verse 12, Then he brought the king's son out and put a crown on him and gave him the testimony, and they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! Perhaps we should take our cue from that and say of our God, long live our King, the the Most High. Psalm 45, verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You will never be dethroned. God's not going anywhere. Why? Because of who He is. He's El Elyon, the Most High. Matthew 6, verse 13, Jesus, in teaching us to pray, says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory for just a little while. Is that what it says? No, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God cannot be moved. God cannot be. Do you know why the righteous man, by the way, in Psalm 1 can't be moved? Because he's in God. He's in Christ. And he is the immovable one. Therefore, we will not be moved either. And and, and notice then the follow-on to that. He is to be feared. There is to be a, a joy, a joyful fear, a reverential fear that is wrapped up in all of this. Our joy is bound up. It's not separated from, but it's bound up in the fear of the Lord. I, I look at the book of Proverbs. You look at the life that Solomon is instructing for his son, and he wants his son to live. And I don't think any of us would look at the book of Proverbs and say, what a drudgery to find the fullness of life, to find wisdom, to find all of these things that Solomon wants for his son. None of us are going to look at that and go, no thanks. We'll take the way of the transgressor instead. That is so much better, right? But where is all of that bound up? And where is the joy of Proverbs bound up? Here, chapter 14, verse 26. The fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And his children will have refuge there. Where? In the fear of the Lord. In the joy and the confidence that comes from who God is and fearing him. In verses 2, 7, and 9, we're told why. We're given reasons why. We should do so. He rules over all the earth. Verse 2, he's a great king over all the earth. One of the things that, that often gets my attention, monarchies fascinate me. They're interesting. We've never lived with one here, really, in our country. But when you look at the ancient countries of the world, one of the, they're all related, For num- number one. All the European kings and queens, you ever look at it, they're all related. They all intermarried. So, boy, that's got to be interesting, going to war with your first cousin and your second cousin. And, you know, I mean, it's a bloody history, but they're all kin at some level. It's bizarre. But in, in, in contemporary times, when you see things like the G7 conference and those sorts of things, and all these people are getting together, and you have to think that what's going through their mind is, okay, we're all kings. 
we're all queens. But who's the alpha king? Who's the alpha queen here? Right? Who, who is really supreme and sovereign in this group? And they're all patting each other and making nice with each other. And you know, based on just human pride, those thoughts are entering into their minds. Well, I'm better than you, and I'm better than you, and I, you know, my country's... You know what solves that discussion is some chaplain who they'll never have coming in and saying, the Lord reigns. He rules over all of you. You're all just pawns. In his greater plan and scheme, he rules over all the earth. So, brothers and sisters, as all of this current, whatever it is we're living in, this quagmire, it feels like, and there's all of these people vying for power and attention, just remember this. God reigns over them, too. Nobody usurps his worldwide dominance. He subdues. He subdues the earth. Verse 3, he subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of the God of Jacob, because he rules in verse 2, verse 7, and verse 9. He rules over all the earth. He is able then to subdue all the peoples under Israel's feet, under his people's feet. God has promised that in his rule that he will not allow his people to be overcome and all the promises that he made to them destroyed. You know why? As the people of God, why we don't have to fear? Because if we're destroyed, God's promises have been destroyed. And God will not allow his promises to be destroyed and reflect poorly upon him. He will bring to fruition all that he's promised. And so we can rest in that and rejoice in that, that God reigns and he's going to subdue everything under his feet for his own glory. You know, in the case of Old Testament Israel, he promised them land and they got it. It took the defeat of a very wicked king and the most powerful nation on the face of the earth to do it, being, their army being swallowed up in an ocean. But God did it. He led them through a nation in which fortresses were already constructed, where giants lived, where they were outnumbered, grotesquely so, where there were no provisions in the desert for them to sustain themselves as they marched. And yet God provided manna, and they went into a country, into cities that they did not build, into vineyards that they had not planted, against giants who they could not humanly defeat, and everything in front of them was cast down. Why? The Lord reigns. And he subdues nations. I don't know, it doesn't feel like it anymore. When was the last time you met a Canaanite? Or a Jebusite? Why? You know, come to think of it, never. You know why? The Lord reigns. He vanquished Israel's enemies. Those people aren't anymore. Because God put them under the feet of his own people. He rules and he reigns. Look at verse 4. He chooses our inheritance for us. The glory of Jacob, whom he loves. Their proud rejoicing was not in themselves. It is in the inheritance given by God. 
given by God. They they bestow the praise in the right place. They are not self-made people. They understand they are God-made people. You know, there's nothing more grotesque than, than people who have inherited something from someone else and they act like they're the ones that did it. You know, living on somebody else's success and making it as if, well, you know, letting people think it was you that did it. Nobody enjoys that kind of hypocrisy, right? And Israel doesn't do that. He he chose them. He put them in their inheritance. And as a result, they praise him for it. They give credit where credit is due. They don't take it for themselves as if they somehow accomplished it. Notice what else he does. He loves Look at the end of verse 4. The glory of Jacob, whom he loves. Why did he do all of this? Because he loved them. And he loves us. All that God does, he does out of love for one of two things. He loves his own glory, and he loves those who promote his own glory. And so he does these things. He does it so that we would glorify him. He loves us so that we would glorify and magnify that love. Jeremiah 31 verse 3, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. If it wouldn't ruin the song when we sing how deep the father's love, we should really sing how deep the father's everlasting love. Because that's how scripture defines it. An unfailing love. An eternal love. We might be asking how it's relevant then to the nations that they would rejoice in the fact that they haven't been loved as the people of God have been loved. One commentator points out that by placing Israel in their midst, that was God's act of love towards them. In fact, if you would, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, would you? Deuteronomy chapter 4, I think is a pivotal passage that's very often overlooked in Scripture, but it's so informative as to our view of God. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do you hear the language of reigning? God owns that land, so he has the right to give that land to his people. So he's going to give it to them. And you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I commanded you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor, and all the men who followed Baal Peor. For the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of them. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of all the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? You see, we're set among the people so that in our rejoicing and in our upholding of who God is and in our blessing of God and rejoicing in His reign, the nations would say, there is something really strange going on. Who does that? Who has that? What God is there who responds to His people like this God? He actually talks to them. I know I've mentioned it before, but when you study ancient Near East archaeology, you find their little statues. And their little statues often have no or closed mouths, but very large ears. So that their gods would hear them. But one thing they could never claim was that their God spoke to them. And the nations say to us, who has a God like this that makes promises and then keeps them? What nation, what people? And so, brothers and sisters, that is our opportunity being placed in this world around us to say to them, worship the Lord. Clap your hands and shout because God has done all these things. And in our living in their midst, they see God doing those things. And they ask themselves this question. Who does that? Who lives like that? What what people has a God like that? Notice when God called Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. We tend to, to sometimes, I think, maybe get a little too... Jacob and Israel focused, if I can say that. Because the blessing of the Abrahamic call was this. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. But in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Why? Because we come to know God and the worship of God through that Abrahamic line, particularly in Christ. So when we call on all the peoples of the world to to worship our God and and tell them they have no choice but to worship our God, we are living proof. We are a living testimony of His love and His grace and His glory among them. Christian, as we rest in this great truth that the Lord reigns, we do so with authority. We call the nations to worship our God with authority. Why? Because there will be judgment if they do not, and there will be blessing if they do. If these things are true, if all the nations must come to understand this, then how much more should we in the church of Jesus Christ understand his reign? So much so that we declare it with our lives and who we are. There seems to be a shift in his view now as the psalmist moves into the last half of this psalm. There seems to be a shift, an interlude, and in verse 5 we find the apex of this psalm. 
God has ascended with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. He is a victorious God. He, he has now ascended to his holy place. A triumphant place. He's led in battle and he has won. He's been placed as ruler among his people. And now his people are obligated to respond to him. Notice that there is a command in verse 1. But notice how much more rich and how much more colorful verses 6 through 9 are as the people of God respond to him. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful song. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. This is the response of the people of God. Notice the shift in language. He is not just God any longer. He is our God and our king. See, not only does God reign, God reigns and he is our king. He reigns for us and over us. The increased and repetitive language that you see there, the to sing praises and to sing praises emphasizes the importance of what the psalmist is trying to communicate here. The people of God bear a unique responsibility to praise him. God's people are a singing people. Josh mentioned it earlier, and I, after Josh said that, I kind of took notice myself. Because, you know, some Sundays you sing better than others. Let's just be honest. I love you. Sometimes you sing out more than other Sundays. Sometimes it's more noticeable. And this morning, I really heard you. God's people are singing people. We have a song that's been planted in our hearts, Psalm 22, 3, yet you are holy. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. What is Israel known as? They are known as a praising people, a singing people, and we are commanded to sing to the Lord. Because he is our king. Because he's enthroned in a place of exclusive and unique honor. The praises of his people should correspond. Some of the most beautiful music written in the history of mankind has been written by the people of God. For the worship of God. Some of you may know, some of you may not know, but... Certainly every child who's taken musical lessons to any extent at all becomes familiar with Johann Sebastian Bach. Who always began, and if you look at a piece of original Bach music, of which there's not a lot left, but if you look at it, he always began his songs that have become used throughout the world and not necessarily for religious purposes, but he always would pin at the top of the page, Yesu Juva, Jesus help me. And he would sign the bottom of every piece of music, Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. Why? Because Bach had a heart full of what the gospel had done in him, and he wrote music for the glory of God, for the people of God to sing and to worship around. The people of God are, are, ought to be the most skillful singers. Notice he says, do it with a skillful psalm. Do it well. Do it to the best of your ability. A command that involves, first of all, knowing the subject of whom we sing. Fidelity to the subject to whom we sing. And repetition, never ceasing to sing His praise. 
The Hebrew word actually notes that it's something so familiar that it's memorized. It's funny, my dad, I think he's watching at home, injured. But he'll always say to me, and he said my whole life, I, my, I just have a terrible memory. And, he, and he's, he has struggled with that, to memorize scripture. And there's always a challenge for him. But it's always amazed me, my, my dad can recall any song that he heard on the radio from 1950 to today. Why is that? Because music does something to the mind. It helps aid learning. It aids repetition. It aids all of those things. You put something to music, you are far more likely to remember it than just trying to memorize text. So it's no wonder that God says in my praise, I want you to praise me in song so that it comes from the heart and so that it is remembered. Because for all time I will reign and because I will reign for all time, you must sing praise for all time. Put that maxim to work that that those who know him most praise him best. And for those that do, there's great comfort that God rules and God reigns. When Paul and Silas were in prison, you know what they weren't doing? Constructing a legal defense. Sorry, John. They weren't conducting an argument as to why they should be let out of prison. They weren't moaning and groaning and bellyaching. You know what they were doing, right? They were singing. Why? To remind themselves who God is. More than likely, they were singing the Psalms because that's what Jewish people did. They're singing psalms of praise, hymns of praise to their God. He's enthroned and He cannot be taken off that seat. No matter what our circumstances are, His haven't changed. And if His haven't changed, we still have hope. If our God is still on the throne, we have hope. Therefore, sing skillfully, knowing this. He reigns over the nations. There's nothing that He cannot do. He sits on His holy throne. And notice what He says when He gets to verse 9. I love this. The princes of the people, the most powerful of all the people, the most influential of all the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. Everyone has now been brought into his dominion. Whether you acknowledge him or not, you've been brought. Just like the people of God are there who recognize his kingship, who love his kingship, these others have now been brought in as well. And notice what he says next. For the shields of the earth Belong to God. The shields of the earth belong to God. What is a shield? What is meant by this? We might think of it best in our context, or or at least closest to our context, as a coat of arms. Some of you probably have done your family history and research, and you know what your coat of arms looked like if you came from Scotland or England or Ireland or somewhere like that. I did a little reading this week 
on the Order of the Garter, which is an English nobility celebration. And every year, the Order of the Garter, that the highest knights in the land and those who are granted nobility to the land, they come and, and they're, they're, others are inducted in and others who have died are taken out. And they're all mounted in a particular uh, cathedral in England. And it's an interesting practice because when someone dies in the order of the garter, their, their shield is removed, their crest is removed from the inside of that building and taken back to the queen from which it was granted. Because she is the sovereign of that nation and she granted to that knight or to that Lord the ability to be what he was. And notice what the text says. All the shields of the earth belong to God. God granted you that shield. God put you there. God made you the ruler that you are there. You are not a self-made man. You are not a, a party elected leader. God put you there. And someday your shield's going back to where it came from. And you will acknowledge, whether volitionally of your own or by God subduing you, you will confess, God reigns. Every prince among the people, every coat of arms, every shield, every mighty man belongs to God. By right of creation, by right of God putting them there. And God will receive that back to himself because he is highly exalted. No one reigns over our God. None can match or supersede who he is. All the peoples will come and they'll bow. So brothers and sisters, after our series through Jude and after our Sunday school series this Summer, addressing biblically from a biblical worldview the, the problems of the culture as it related to wokeness and all those things. It can get really dark and discouraging, but don't be. Why? God is highly exalted. They haven't changed him. No one can change him. No one will change him. He reigns. And so be encouraged and be assured of this. That he does reign, and because of that, we are privileged. We of all people are most privileged to know these truths and to proclaim these truths to the world around us. Hey, we know the King of Kings if we have trusted Christ, right? We have a, a relationship, a saving relationship with Christ. If we have placed our faith in him, we know the King of all kings. And he communes with us by his spirit. And we meet him in his word. And we walk with him and we talk with him, as the old hymn says, because he is in us and we are in him. And we have a front row seat to see that he does reign and to be convinced of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, For as many as are the promises of God in Him, they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. We don't have to fear. 
We don't have to live discouraged, defeated lives because our God reigns. We need only fear, a rejection of acknowledging that in our lives. We must proclaim. We must proclaim to ourselves and to the world around us, the Lord reigns. You know, it's interesting. We sum up our purpose for being on this earth, and I do not disagree with it. I heartily believe it. But that is the Great Commission, and we say our purpose in life is the Great Commission, to make Christ known so true, so true, that we must do. But we often go straight to Matthew 28, 19, and to the actual command As you are going, make disciples, make Christ known. But we forget verse 18. The the platform and the power behind the Great Commission. And here it is. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Go. Why? The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Our God reigns. He is to be feared. He is to be worshipped. He is to be trusted. He is to be loved and adored. And so, Christian, ours is not to despair, but to praise. And to say with authority to the nations, the Lord does reign. You must worship him. Not to fear, but to proclaim. God is on his throne. He will be on his throne, and none will will overcome. So regardless of what you feel in the week to come, when the world bombards you, just remember Psalm 47, the Lord reigns. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with a voice of joy. Sing praises to his name. Sing praises. He is highly exalted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. we don't necessarily feel that the the problem is not in the quality of the word spoken and revealed the problem would just lie in the fact that it is so grand and glorious we struggle to comprehend so father we pray that you would grow and increase our faith cause us to savor You, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, cause our faith to be rooted in Him so that we do comprehend all of the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God, of the rule of God, of the kingliness of your person, ruling over all. And we would come to be so saturated and convinced and moved by those things that to say and to believe and to live like the Lord reigns just becomes our natural default setting. So, Father, do teach us. Do increase our faith. We pray for your glory and your sake alone. And we ask these things through Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen.